0: We need Jesus. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday again. Every day we need the Lord. Praise God. I need him every hour. Hallelujah. That's an old song by that title, isn't it? I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful afterglow of the revival that we have. And uh, I really, really had a... A great stirring, and I think we had a breakthrough on Sunday with Brother Hagen here. Um, I anticipate greater things in the coming days and weeks and months, and um, I look forward to what God is going to do in our midst. Amen. Praise the Lord. I thank Him for it. Uh, while you're still standing, I want to turn your attention to Acts chapter two, thirty-seven. 37. That's chapter 2, verse 37, and then Acts chapter 16, verse 30. I'm only going to read a portion of each of those scriptures to highlight the topic of my lesson tonight, and that is salvation. And uh, praise the Lord. I pray you follow along, take notes if you need to, if you don't have the means, then you can go home and listen to it again online. Praise God, and take notes afterwards. Praise God. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice the word do. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30, right after there was a great earthquake, right before, as Paul and Silas praying, singing psalms in the midnight hour, God sent a strong earthquake to that jailhouse. And all the doors were opened up. And uh, the warden thought that every one of the prisoners escaped. And in the Roman times, a warden paid with his life if there's such an escape, let alone an escape where the whole jailhouse is emptied out. And uh, he was ready to fall on his sword and kill himself when Paul cried out and said, Fear not, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And in response to that, that jailer, that warden came in, hallelujah, in that jailhouse. And he knelt down before Paul, trembling, and said this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The most important question anyone could ask, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified on the spot. And by the time he was done, he baptized him and his whole household in Jesus' name. And I presume they were filled with the Holy Ghost. It doesn't record that, but the Bible says this whole house was saved. And if it's saved, that means he got the whole ball of wax. Amen. And uh, so my topic is salvation. Now, let's pray. Lord, in Jesus' mighty name, we praise you, we worship you, and magnify your name, and I pray, O Lord, that your anointing hand will be upon this preacher, I'm upon, O Lord God, this word that you've already anointed, but Lord, let it come forth with your anointing and with your strength, let it go forth in every heart and every mind, not only in this auditorium, but also to those, O Lord, who are watching online. And I pray that it would be to the glory of your name and to the edification of your people in Jesus' mighty name. And let the church say amen. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. This is uh, session number five of our series of the basics of Christianity. And while some of this material will be basic, it will really be for some people strong meat, at least getting there. And so I, I ask you to put your thinking cap on tonight and uh, think scripture and think about the principles that I will bring forth and uh, just take it uh, with the Holy Ghost anointing that uh, you and I both need to receive the word and then God give us the illumination and the understanding. Okay, salvation is a very, very important matter. I think you know that. It has eternal consequences individually and congregationally. Uh, it's the reason that this church is in existence. It's to, uh, to, to preach the gospel by which the truth is, is expounded. And by that truth, people can be made free and set free. And uh, that's really what salvation means. When you look at what salvation is all about, it comes from a Greek word translated from sozo, S-O-Z-O, which means to save, to deliver, to protect, to heal, and to preserve. It's in a general sense. But when you speak of spiritual matters and theology, salvation really means to deliver a person or soul from the power and effects of sin. The power of sin and the effects of sin. Because sin is a power. It is a powerful power that keeps people enslaved. But the problem is that with that sin that keeps people enslaved also comes a, an effect, a punishment, a coming judgment. So when we're talking about salvation, it means deliverance of a person or a soul from the power of sin and from the effects of that sin so that, one, you can come out from under the governing power of that sin and come out and be saved from the judgment and punishment of that sin. And that's what, uh, that's what, what salvation is all about. It's to redeem us from spiritual death. Spiritual death. And right here, I want to identify three kinds of death. I think you and I are all pretty much familiar with physical death. And physical death would be defined as a separation of the human spirit from the body. When your spirit departs from the body, you're dead physically. The Bible says that the spirit goes back to God who gave it and your body goes into the ground from whence it came. That's physical death. Then there's spiritual death. It's the separation of the body and soul from God. There's that disconnect from the spirit of God. And that's what happened to Adam and in the garden. God warned Adam and Eve and he said, The day that you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you shall die. And he was not speaking physical death, although that also took place after the fact. That's part of the consequence. But immediately a a spiritual death took place and God separated himself from Adam and Eve and there was a disconnect between their spirit and God's spirit and they became spiritually dead and every person who has ever been born from Adam and Eve were born sinners because sinful people reproduce sinful people. Just as apple trees reproduced apple trees, orange trees reproduced orange trees, banana trees reproduced banana trees, but sin reproduced sin. Sinful people reproduce sinners. And so God told them, a day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And they did. They died a spiritual death, and after a time, they also uh, suffered a physical death, and uh, so that's the second kind of death, the physical death and then the spiritual death. And when we're born again, it's when we reconnect with God and we're born again spiritually and all of a sudden, we're alive spiritually. Now we have a reconnection, a, a, we have a reconciliation with God. And now we can walk with him and talk with him just like Adam and Eve did, and even more so in the beginning because Adam and Eve did not have the spirit of God inside of them. We do. And what a great privilege that is. So there's physical death. There's spiritual death. But then there's the second death. And the second death is the most consequential and the tragic of all if anybody suffers death. That's the separation of the soul and body. And separated in hell throughout eternity from God. When your soul and body... In hell, throughout eternity, separated from God. That's what the second death is all about. So salvation means uh, really a, a, a quickening from spiritual death and becoming alive spiritually and being spared from having to suffer the second death. This is why the, uh, the book of Revelation tells us that if you're born again and you're in the rapture of the church and you're caught away, that that's the first resurrection for us. And, and the, the Bible tells us, blessed are they that have part in the first resurrection for the second death hath no power over them. If you're in the rapture, if you're saved, hallelujah, then you will never suffer the second death. Hallelujah. So... Before anyone can experience salvation down here, in the meantime, this earth, they have to come to a realization that they're lost. And they have to understand what that lostness or what that being lost means with respect to their relationship to God. This is why you see, when you're teaching Bible studies and preaching the gospel, you have to find out and, and really be sensitive to their background and what they know and what they don't know. Uh, so, in any case, uh, teaching a Bible study is a very good uh, way to lay the foundation and help people to uh, get a background and a context and a foundation for the Word of God so that they can receive uh, the message of salvation, the gospel of salvation. But teaching a Bible study and, and knowing about the Bible is the Bible that tells us that we are lost. And many people are lost and they don't know that they're lost. Hallelujah. Uh, and so uh, we have an important task to do. The gospel was established to address this lost state of mankind. Uh, There are a lot of people, millions in fact, as you know, who don't know that they're lost and they have not experienced salvation yet because they've not heard the message of what I'm telling you here tonight. So I'm trying to keep it as basic as possible, but I'm giving you context in what is going on with the message of salvation and what we have to do to transmit to them the idea one, that they're lost. Two, they, are, they have a disconnect with God. There's a consequence and effect. There's a punishment and judgment for that. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And there is wages that comes with that, and that is death. Death in eternity and separated from God. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ was designed and provided by God to bring this message of hope to them. This is why we have one of the greatest assignments of any institution on the face of the earth. Greater than that of human government. Amen. One time I remember reading a story. A preacher back in the time of Abraham Lincoln. He was president. He went to the president to apply for a job. He says, well, what is your background? What, what, what are you? What do you do? He said, I'm a preacher. He says, Sir. I don't have a position in my administration. You have the highest office on the land already. You have the most important job, sir. And that is to draw souls out of hell and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm ad-libbing, but that's, that's basically, the, the, in a nutshell, what he told him, uh, And I've never forgotten that. Uh, to preach the gospel is a great privilege. And it is a great task, a great assignment. Jesus died for his church to propagate and to preach this message. Some people take it so much for granted. Some of us, you know, we hear Acts 2.38 or the message of salvation. And, you know, we just don't value it uh, as much as we really should. But we should never forget that it is the power of salvation unto them that believe. The power of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel... Is the truth about God that sinful people have suppressed over the past ages and centuries. Now, I have a scripture I want to read to you. It's a little lengthy, but it's from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And I want to read it in the New Living Translation. Um, It is um, basically a summary of how we got to where we are today. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. I want to make sure everybody's comfortable and gets a seat. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Church does start at 730 if you can make it. I know some of us, some have already indicated that they're going to be late. Praise the Lord. Try to be on time when you come to church. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. And if you have to go out, you can come back in and sit somewhere in the back row, okay? That way you won't be disturbing anybody else. And parents, keep an eye on your children so they don't go in and out too often. We understand if they have to go to the restroom, but that needs to be controlled. Okay? When they're old enough to control their bladder and other functions, uh, they need to, to learn to respect what is going on in the service. The Bible said, let everything be done decently and in order. Amen? Come on now. I'm speaking like a grandfather and a father. I don't always like to have kids. Come on now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But don't get mad at me. If you do, you better pray through. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We got altars here tonight, and we're going to have a mourner's bench right here. And say, Oh, God, forgive me for being mad at my pastor. Thank you, Jesus. So Romans uh, chapter 2, excuse me, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, and uh, if you want to Put that on there. I think I would good. Thank you, Sister Ruth. I did indicate that I would read that uh, to you from that. And those. Well, let me read it from my phone instead. A lot better. And it uh, describes this heading saying, "Is God's anger at sin?" So, but God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Catch that. He's He's angry against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Now, we're we're going all the way back to uh, after Adam and Eve. We're going back to the time of Enoch when he turned his back on God and his descendants. And then we're going back all the way to the Tower of Babel when Nimrod rebels against God and they build the tower trying to to, to make their way into heaven by their own efforts and their own means and their own devices. And where God confused the languages and they took their idolatry with them because he introduced idolatry on a grand scale. And institutionally, idolatry became the religion of many of those groups of people that were dispersed from, from uh, Babel. And so God's looking on this on the situation, how idolatry came in. And the reason idolatry was was so prevalent is because wicked people suppressed the truth about God. And so he says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, see, Paul goes all the way back to creation, people have seen the earth and sky Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious everlasting, excuse me, everliving God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded uh, the truth about God for a lie. Notice they traded the truth about God. For a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Notice what He says here. You'll hear this phrase three times in this segment, down all the way to the end. That is why God abandoned them. And the King James says He gave them over to. This is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. God didn't abandon them because he had abandoned them first. He abandoned them because they were so bent on suppressing the truth about him, about worshiping him and turning to things that are not God's. And because they turned their backs on him, God turned his back on them. That's how the world came into this sad situation that we're in even yet today. They traded the truth. About God for a lie. So they worshiped and served all day. Verse 26 again. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex. And instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, here it is again, listen, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, Haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, and heartless. Uh, another uh, expression in King James says they are, um, oh, what's the word? They are implacable. Impla- you can't placate them. You cannot appease them in any way. You cannot reason with them. So, when you're teaching a Bible study and you're working on somebody, and if they're so polluted with wickedness, you have to gauge them, their response. If there's no peace, to, if, they, if there's no way of the peace, and if they're not listening, and they're constantly contrary and offensive and abusive, you turn away from them. That's what Jesus calls uh, the danger of casting your pearls before swine. You don't share the gospel with that kind of person. Oh, that sounds almost contrary to sound doctrine, doesn't it? Jesus, when he sent the disciples two by two out in the villages, he said, pray. He says, wherever your peace settles on that house, that house you go in. Don't just go in any house, on, any, all the houses in the villages you want to. It's where you feel that receptivity. It's where you feel that openness. Jesus always went where he was celebrated, not where he was just tolerated. And so Paul's talking here about both Jews and Gentiles. He talked about the world at large. He said they have new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. Notice, refuse to understand. It's not that they can't. They refuse, they're unwilling, they're willingly ignorant, as the King James would say. They refuse to understand, break their promises, they're heartless, and have no mercy. We're living in that generation right now. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, and yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. See how we got here? It's the suppression about the truth of God and who he is. And when you suppress that truth, men invent all kinds of evil devices and they justify themselves by by human reasoning. And and we end up with all of these uh, manifestations of of the works of the flesh that Galatians 5 also describes. And so Paul here is describing uh, the world. And and again, I remind you in verse 24, 26, 28, he says, God gave them over. He abandoned them to their own desires, their own carnality, and their own imaginations. And this abandonment, as I mentioned, began with Cain and then continued all the way through uh, Babel with Nimrod. And... Looking at this world, back even at at the Tower of Babel, it was in these conditions that God looked down and said, I'm going to call me a man, Abraham, and I'm going to build a nation out of him. And I'm going to commit my truths to him. And he is going to be a witness to the entire world that's languishing in idolatry. In fact, Isaiah 42.6 is a prophetic chapter it, is, it has a double meaning because in one sense it's prophesying, out, prophesying about the coming of Jesus the Messiah, but it's also talking about uh, the call that, uh, that Israel had as being a light to the nations. Uh, in Isaiah 42, 6, the last segment of that verse, that verse, I uh, will give thee for a covenant for the people, you, amen, for a light of the Gentiles. Another translation says, for a light unto the nations. God wanted Israel to be a light, a witness to all the uh, idolatrous uh, nations in the world who deliberately suppressed the truth about the one true God. Amen. So uh, in any case, that's how how the world got to where it is today. And this is basically the spiritual history of the world. And this is why we are where we are. Hallelujah. Bottom line is every human being is a sinner and in need of salvation. The first three chapters of the book of Romans, when you continue reading, you'll see it's basically uh, an indictment against humanity, both Jew and Gentile, uh, and saying that there's no difference between the Jew and uh, uh, the Gentile. Uh, Both groups and categories of people uh, are just as guilty from sin as the other uh, some of the Jewish people in Paul's day contended, well, we have the law of Moses. And, uh, and Paul contended and said, well, you may have the law of Moses that's read to you every Saturday, but it's, it's not enough to be a hearer of the law and possess the law in your hand. It's whether or not you do the law that it justifies you or it doesn't. If you do it, it justifies If it doesn't, then if you don't do it, then it doesn't justify So. And most of the people by Jesus' day were not really being justified by the law. They were going through things ceremonially, but in their heart, they were wicked as ever. And so uh, there was a lot of sin uh, laying underneath their ceremonies and their religion. And Paul was basically telling here in the book of Romans that, that even though the Jews may have the law of Moses, they're still condemned, condemned by the law. Because they heard the law, but they didn't obey it. As far as the Gentiles were concerned, Paul contended that they didn't have the law of Moses, didn't have the Old Testament, but they were condemned by conscience. Because the Gentiles themselves also had a very basic uh, understanding of right and wrong. And we had that from the time that Adam and Eve took the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Basically, they had an understanding of what is right and wrong. Most of the Gentile nations do. I think every society understands that it is really wrong to take a human life. It has been that way for most civilizations. There have been exceptions to the rule, let's say the least. But they have practiced human sacrifice and so on. And they justified it many times, especially in sacrificing a human to idols, you know, that they're doing it to appease a higher power. Even though God never required that. The true God, real God, never did. But... In short, all of mankind, Jews and Gentiles, is under sin. In Romans 3.10, the Bible tells us that there's none righteous, not one. In Romans 3.19, we're told that all are guilty before God. And in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And because all of mankind is under the sentence of death because of sin, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And James 1.15, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Amen. So where there's sin present, whether Jew or Gentile, we're all under a sentence of death. Thus, we all need the message and hope of salvation from the power and effects of sin. Amen. So not only does each man need salvation, but there's nothing that Any individual can do to save themselves from the power and the effects of this sin. We need the deliverer. Hallelujah. And it's only God that can do that for us. No matter good works on our part, will pay for our redemption. This is why Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not just grace alone, but grace through faith. It has to be both. In fact, faith meaning obedient faith. Because faith brings forth fruits of works of faith. And that is very important. Because God's grace teaches. That's Titus chapter 2 verse 11 and 12. I want to bring your attention to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, the example of Noah. As you know, God was about to destroy the world with a flood, and he told Noah about it ahead of time. In chapter 6, verse 7, God uh, says that, uh, well, verse 6 even he repented the Lord, they made man on the earth, and he grieved them at his heart. And he said, I will destroy man. Whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and every creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. But verse 8 says, notice this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How did he find it? Well, by walking with God. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. And perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And when he walked with God. God revealed to him his plan. And then God revealed to him. What Noah should do to save himself. And his household. Now please note. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Then God provided the plan. Told him to build that ark. He gave him the dimensions. And Noah had to accept the plan by obedient faith. Noah had to act upon the plan. Works of faith. And then Noah had to build the ark according to God's specifications. He couldn't just use any other numbers that, other than what, the, what God gave him. And so by faith, He had to obey God's command and God's plan. So the question is, did Noah build the ark to be saved? Or did he build the ark because he was saved? Bringing it to modern day argument with respect to the grace of God and salvation. Did Noah build the ark to be saved or did he build it because he was saved? And if he was saved by grace alone, why did he have to build the ark? Why can't he just say, well, God's got it all taken care of, and when the waters come, he'll make sure that I float on top, even though I don't know how to swim. Hey, does that make sense? <laughs> but the Bible says that he was moved to fear. In fact, uh, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, if you go there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. But while you're looking for that, you. since he did build the ark, now the question is too, did God save him or did Noah save himself? Hmm. That no, just, was just a rhetorical question. Think about that. Noah found grace in the eyes of God, and God gave him a plan to build an ark. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth, but well, now I want you to build an ark, and then when you finish it, I want you and your wife and your sons and their wives to go in. I, I read it for myself, and you can see it for yourself as well. He told him that this is going to be for you. Build it for you and for your family. God had a plan. So Noah goes out and builds the ark. And so now the question is, did God save him or did Noah save himself? Because after all, it was he who had to build the thing. Would he have been saved and his family if he didn't build the ark? Hmm? No, I agree. Even though it was a rhetorical question, but. But I would submit to you tonight that the answer to that question, did God save Noah or did Noah save himself, is really twofold. Because it took both. It took God to provide the grace on the plan, and it took Noah to have obedient faith to obey that plan. And it's the same thing today. And the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, tells us, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's the reward of them that diligently seek him. Verse seven, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Amen. Condemned the world meaning he witnessed against them that he heard from God. He built the ark according to his plan of specifications. Nobody else made preparation for it. He preached for a hundred plus years about the coming of rain and coming of destruction. Nobody believed him. But no believed him. And the Bible says that Uh, He was moved with fear. Amen. But notice, I'll get back to that a little bit. But he was moved with fear and he prepared the ark to the saving of his house. Now, when it says his house, it's not talking about his literal wooden house. It's talking about his family, his household. Amen. Noah had to do his part, being obedient in faith and action. But we found, he found grace in the eyes of God also. And you and I who have found grace in the eyes also, we also have to do our part in obedient faith to do God's plan in our lives that will result in your salvation and mine. Now notice, he says, uh, moved with fear and not in fear. That's important because it's not in the New Testament scripture uh, that I will quote to you also says, "With fear, not in fear. Mark that down, all right? Uh, because, again, there's some things that God does, and there's some things that you and I have to do by obedient faith. Case in point, Acts 2:40. Paul, excuse me, Peter finishing up his message on the day of Pentecost, He says, "Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Now, how can a person save himself? Well, they can't. They can only do their part. God, through the Holy Ghost, using Peter, just preached a message of salvation, gave the instructions when the, uh, the men in the crowd asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those are the instructions from God. Now, Peter says, save yourself. Do your part. You've got the plan. You've got the specifications. You've got the dimensions of the ark. Now build it yourself. How? Repent. Come to the altar. Repent. Get baptized in Jesus' name. Let the name of the Lord be called over you. Fill, be filled with the Holy Ghost. Do your part, yield your tongue, and let the Spirit speak through you. Experience the new birth. Then walk with God as Noah did in fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, notice that word? Not as in my presence only, but now much more my absence. Work out your own salvation. Here it is again, with fear and trembling, not in fear, with fear, and that really means a healthy respect. It is keeping in mind that this is serious business, and and yes, God loves us and He wants to save us, but you better give it serious attention and make sure you don't mess up because you know God just doesn't tolerate negligence. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation. God said that to the word. and anointing to the prophet. How shall we escape. If we neglect so great a salvation. And the only way you can avoid negligence. Is by giving it serious attention. And understanding that if you mess up. Or you make a mistake. You may not end up where you thought you would. Truth anyhow. Not in fear, but with fear. Respect. A healthy respect. Keeping eternity in mind. Hallelujah. First John 3.3 3 says, every man that have this hope in him purifieth himself. There we go. See, God purifies us in water baptism, and he does his part that we have to do our part. Hallelujah. Purify himself even as he is is pure. That's what holiness and walking in sanctification of faith is all about. Purifying and purging yourself on those things that are not pleasing to him. That's not about me. It's not about the church rules. It's about his rules. Talking about modesty. I'm talking about uh, sobriety. I'm talking about honesty. I'm talking about plain and pure speech. Hallelujah, the list goes on. It's doing our part. God does his part, but we have to do ours as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And James 2, 17 and 26, I won't take time to read the whole segment, but I'll just read the first verse of chapter uh, 2, verse 17. And it says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. It takes grace and it takes faith." Grace through faith, hallelujah, both work hand in hand. The grace of God simply makes salvation available. And by faith, you have to believe it and accept it. Then you have to act upon it in obedience. And without those ingredients, it doesn't work. The grace of God by itself and just faith in God by itself is not enough. You have to act upon it. It has to be obedient faith. Amen. And that's really what the whole segment of chapter 2, verse 17 through 26 is all about and refers to Abraham and many other people in the Old Testament who have been counted righteous by combining the grace of God with their faith in their provisions and then acting upon that faith in obedience. And that's a constant both in the Old and the New Testament. And that hasn't changed. And it will never will. Amen. So, Salvation. Hallelujah, praise God, the example of Noah, the role of grace and faith and obedient faith at that. Now, salvation can only come through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, him alone. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Why Jesus only? Well, I have a segment that I want to read to you from Brother Bernard's book on, on new birth. Nobody can describe it any better than that. And uh, forgive me for for having uh, somewhat of a... uh, It's not that lengthy. And he says this, why Jesus only. Since all men are sinners, the holiness of God demanded that he separate himself from sinful man and also required death as a penalty for man. God chose to bind himself by the principle of death for sin. Without the shedding of blood, as the giving of life, because life is in the blood, there can be no remission or release from this penalty, Hebrews 9.22, and no restoration of fellowship with the holy God is possible without that. So the death of animals is not sufficient to remit or to remove the sin of man because man is much greater than the animals that, that, uh, that he created. And the man that was created in the spiritual, mental, and moral image of God. Genesis 1.27. So neither can an ordinary man become the substitutionary sacrifice for another. For all deserve eternal death for their own sins. You get the picture? Animals can't do it because they're inferior in creation. An animal can't equate to man. We're morally, mentally, every which way, spiritually, a superior Created being above every other animal that's on the face of the earth. Animals don't have a sense of right and wrong, for one. Animals don't build houses like we do. They don't build skyscrapers. They don't build rocket ships that go to the moon. They don't have colleges and universities and all those things. But man is creative because we are so much in his likeness and his image. Uh, But, amen. Uh, so, So... So animals, the death of animals, which God required in all the Old Testament to shed for their own sins and to cover it up was only a temporary fix and it was really meant to roll ahead the sins of mankind until Christ died on Calvary and shed his blood. That's why John the Baptist said of him, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. But... Another man, in other words, you or I could not die a substitutionary death for the world like Jesus did. And the reason is because every one of us were born in sin, and every one of us uh, lived under the penalty of that sin. And so when we die, we can only die for our own sin, not for anybody else. Okay? Uh, So in order to provide a suitable substitute, God manifested himself in flesh in the body of Jesus Christ. See, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, and all of mankind after them became sinners, Christ is the only sinless man who has ever lived. So he is the only one who did not deserve to die because he was not a sinner. He was born without sin. He was the only one that could be a perfect substitute for you and I. Therefore, his death on the cross of Calvary became a propitiation, that is a payment uh, uh, to appease an angry God. That's literally what the word propitiation means. So Calvary became a propitiation or atonement and the means by which God can pardon sin without violating his own holiness and justice. God in his nature is holy. He's got to judge sin. In other words, Every human being that comes into his presence has to somehow be forgiven or has to have dealt with his sin before he can step into God's presence. Otherwise, we'd all burn up and die. The Bible describes God's spirit as a consuming fire. Why? Because it's morally totally pure, and you and I are not. And so we have inherent sin. We have uh, sin that, that we're all a part of in this world. Amen. Even was born again, we have a, a, a body that is, is subject to sin and temptation still. Amen. And there'll come in a time when we'll get a new body and we'll go into a new place that we won't have to deal with that anymore. But in the meantime, we're still subject to that. And so, uh, so God has to satisfy the demands of his nature. And the demands of his nature include holiness, so he's got to deal with impurity that comes in his presence. And the only way he could do it and to justify allowing you to come into his presence is to look at that substitutionary death of that body that he presented himself in, shed his sinless blood. And anybody that looks to that Calvary and that shedding of blood by faith, God accepts as a payment for your own sin. And therefore, in obedient faith, if you take the benefits of that blood and apply it to your heart, get for mercy and forgiveness and repentance, get that sin remitted by, by having his blood applied, by having his name called over you in baptism, and then getting filled with his spirit, his pure, holy spirit, and walking with him in his holiness, hallelujah, amen, thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. And this way... You don't have to do anything else to pay for your sin because you look to Jesus who's already paid the price for your sin. Right. Amen. So you don't have to worry about paying for your for your sin. He'll accept anyone and and at any time, any person who by faith accepts that and yields to God's plan. Now, if they don't, if they reject it, that's on their own head. They're not going to heaven. They might even have heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Just by hearing the name of Jesus doesn't make them a believer, doesn't make them a Christian. The Bible says even the devils believe and tremble, but they're not going to heaven. They're going to hell. Amen. So uh, his, God's nature of, of holiness and the demand for justice, I mean, sin has to be taken care of. Sin has to be judged, but he judged it on Calvary. For those who look to Christ in faith, and this is why faith in Christ is so important. See, God, by grace, provided that means for you and I to be saved. All you and I have to do is have faith in it and have obedient faith by acting upon that call of the gospel. Acts 2.38. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, walk in holy life before him. Is that simple enough? Amen. Hallelujah. See, God doesn't excuse our sins. But he's inflicted the penalty for those sins on one innocent man. That's Christ Jesus in humanity. You can ask the question, well, how can one man's blood, even if it was God, how can one man's blood cover and pay for the sins of all of mankind? Well, you have to understand the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the only sinless man that ever lived. The only blood that was not tainted by sin. How expensive do you think that blood was? And the only way I could probably make a comparison, I've used this before, this analogy before, but I'll use it again. You know, when you take a little child, a little baby, and, and you, you compare it to, you know, a sheep over here, if you compare the price of the, or the value of each, which is more valuable in our estimation? Is it that child, that little baby, or is that sheep? Which one is more valuable? obvious is the baby. Now, what about what about that baby? Is that baby worth more than a hundred sheep? How about a thousand sheep? How about a million sheep? How about a billion sheep? How about seven billion sheep in the world, as in people? See, that blood, amen. That's why Peter wrote in his epistle that we were not redeemed with such corruptible things as gold and silver. Because even gold and silver, as valuable it is, it's limited in amount, limited in, 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 in stuff. It, in, in, it's finite. It, it was also, but, but the pricelessness of Christ's blood is un- inestimable. You cannot put a value on it. It's not, his blood is not only enough to pay just for yours, but for the sins of the whole world. Like the old song used to say, well, his blood is not just blood. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But it was, oh, hallelujah, a precious, precious thing. So the substitution benefits us when you and I place our faith in Christ, and then, of course, we apply his gospel to our lives in a new birth. And so the substitutionary atoning death of Christ, and I close with this quote from Brother Bernard. It says, thus the substitutionary atoning death of Christ was made necessary by three things. One, the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, and God's law requiring death as the punishment for sin. That's why God, by His grace, provided the substitutionary death of His body, which we know as Christ Jesus. Amen. Sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, and God's law requiring death as a penalty for that sin. This is why there can be no salvation in any other except in Christ Jesus. You see why there's no other Savior? You see why there's no other God? You see why there's no other way to heaven? There's only one substitutionary death, a person without sin, blood that was priceless, and that was Jesus Christ because he was God in the flesh by design. Hallelujah. Can you say praise the Lord? Hallelujah, Amen. Now, initial salvation is experienced in a new birth, according to Acts two thirty-eight. I said that brings with faith in Christ, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. And uh, we need to remember that salvation is that deliverance from the power and the effects of sin. And it's clear from the Bible that salvation has a past, present, and future consequence or aspects. Brother Bernard also talks about this in his book. I can say I was saved. In fact, uh, in August of this year, uh, I, I was baptized on August 24th, 1975. Uh, so I'm talking about 47 years ago. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. 47 years. That's amazing. Is that possible? Whew. But I'm saved now, too. So I was, I was saved back then as an initial experience, but I've been walking with God, and as I've been walking with God, and because I've been walking with God, I'm saved now. And I enjoy the forgiveness of sins, and the power to live for God, and the freedom from the power and effects of sin, even today. So in the present, I have salvation. Hallelujah. This is why Paul said in Ephesians 2.5, he says, by grace are you saved. In other words, you are, you're saved right now. And the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ is with us on our present salvation. You, have, you are a resurrected, not you're not a resurrected being, but you have the resurrected Christ living inside of you. Praise God. So there's that past, that present, and there's a future aspect of our salvation. Because we have not yet received the final and complete deliverance from all the curse of sin. We've been delivered from the power and effects of it, but yet our human nature is still under the effects of this sinful world. So we've not received that final and complete deliverance. That's why that part, when we get out of here, is future tense. I was saved, I am saved, but I shall be saved in the future. And there's a meaning of that for the future when I'm completely saved and finally saved, while we'll be completely firm, free from this world of sin and its gravitation, its temptation, its curses, its sickness, its wars, and everything that goes with it. But that's future tense. We still live in this sinful, imperfect world. We've got mortal bodies. We've got a sinful nature within us. We face temptation, and we still have the ability to sin. Up there, no longer. That's why there's a salvation with a future aspect. I mean, to look, I look forward to it. Praise God. So our salvation will be complete only when we receive our glorified immortal bodies that will be just like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And I have a few scriptures for you. Romans 8, 23. Listen to the exhortation of the word. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, And that's you and I, too. Speaking to the Romans, but he's speaking to us as well. We which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. It's the rapture. So when the dead in Christ shall rise first, but then we which are alive and remain, hallelujah, shall be caught up together with them in the air and meet the Lord in the clouds. So shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and we should all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that's what he's telling the Romans here, too. We're waiting for that adoption. That's the final step. When we finally enter into that eternal adoption, we leave this temporal world and we step into eternity. Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. For our conversation, and conversation here in King James, as you know, is not just speech, it's behavior, it's walking, it's talking, it's everything about your behavior in this earth below. For our conversation is in heaven. we got to tie to it directly through the Holy Ghost. From whence, from heaven, also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Notice, who shall change our vile body? Look how he calls it. this flesh. Not a place he says, "In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Nothing. I, there's nothing good in me." Hallelujah. Amen. This is flesh. It, it's, it causes more trouble than, than anything else in the world. Hallelujah. And we got to trade it for uh, a, a, a body that is brand new, something that is glorious. That's what he says in comparison. Verse 20, we should change our vibe body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Your body is going to be glorious one day too. But that's in the future. That's future tense salvation. Hallelujah. Well, Thus, the Bible often speaks of our salvation as a future event. Look at Acts 15, 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they, future tense, shall be saved. Hallelujah. And then Romans 13, 11, stand with me if you will. Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time that now is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We're getting nearer or closer to that future tense, the future moment when our body is redeemed in reality. In other words, from temporal to eternal state, from vile to glorious state. Hallelujah. When this mortal will put on immortality, that's coming in the future. That is the future aspect of our salvation. So we shouldn't rest on our laurels down here. Praise God, I got the Holy Ghost. Thank God, hallelujah, we rejoice over that. I rejoice over everybody getting the Holy Ghost. But I tell you what, I'm going to be rejoicing when the trumpet sounds and everybody gets out of here. Hallelujah, when the trumpet sounds, woo, hallelujah. We all get out of here. I pray to God that nobody is left behind. Hebrews 9:28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Well, He's talking about uh, unto people who were saved. But you see the future aspect of salvation here? So much of the scripture is, is there to encourage us to look to the future. Now, we were... Saved in the past years ago. I don't know when your time of salvation began in the past, but you do have a past aspect of salvation. You are now saved if you're walking with God. Hallelujah. But there's a future aspect that you better not miss. It's the future aspect that yet is waiting for us, But we're taken and translated out of this world like Enoch was back in Genesis chapter 5, amen, and 4. And we've gone up into heaven. And we shall inherit all things. Man. I'm talking about salvation. I'm so glad that he saved me. Aren't you glad to be saved? Aren't you glad that you heard the message of salvation? Folks, this is an important topic. I pray that we get a hold of it. I pray that we know how to articulate it. I pray that we're going to burden for people. Now ask God to help us to, to talk to them about their soul because we only get one chance, one chance only. We don't get a second try. Once the trumpet sounds, it's over. Once the church is out of here, there is no second chance. There's no overtime. I want to make it, don't you? I want to be there with the I'm so glad I know this truth. I don't want to suppress it. God help those that do try. That's why the world is in such a mess even this day. Do you realize that nothing has changed in 6,000 years of human history? Look at the evil around us. Look how smart we are. And look how v- wicked and vile we are. We haven't gotten any better. We've gotten worse. Because we know I'm not talking about the truth. I'm talking about the world humanity how in their depraved state because of knowledge being on increase and having in and all that they can spread their falsehoods and spread their lies and, and spread their evil so much faster and affect so many more people. So we have to do our part. Amen. It's still our mission to preach the gospel to every creature. He called us to do just that. And I want to be a part of that, don't you? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We need to sing a song. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Would you sing?